If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, and friends... This is an episode you will not want to miss. We are going to be talking with Mara McDaniel about the power of volunteer fundraisers. Because friends, let's face it, every board member and staff leader with a nonprofit has heard the importance of volunteers in fundraising. For staff leaders, however, it is often daunting to find these volunteers. And honestly, even even when it's our board members and there's an expectation that they're going to be soliciting, it so often feels really scary for those volunteer board members. They're like, oh, I just, I don't know if I can do this. And we as staff members, it's incumbent on us to help them grow and move past that. So Mara McDaniel, I first met when I was serving as the interim executive director of an organization. Her spouse was a board member where I was the interim. And I'll share with you, Mara was looking for a meaningful project to get involved in. And, you know, we've all been that executive director or that interim where a board member's spouse says, oh, I'm looking for a project. I really want to sink my teeth into it. And you think, oh, okay, I'm hoping this turns out well. But, you know, sometimes this might create even more work for me as I am trying to figure out things that this volunteer can do to, quote, unquote, keep a board member happy. And I will share with you that was not at all the case with Mara. Mara was like, what can I do? And we gave her something to do. And honestly, she passed that test with flying colors. So we gave her something else. And she kept doing bigger and bigger things. And at some point, she stepped in to lead sponsorship solicitation because I'll be frank and say, we were short on staff and volunteers who could do this work for a big special event that we had coming up. And so she led sponsorship solicitation. And she not only did a good job, she broke all records for this organization. And the organization ended up generating more money and sponsorships for the event than it had ever generated in the history of the organization. And that is why I am so excited to have this conversation with Mara, because we are going to really be talking about, frankly, 
how unscary it can be once you get used to becoming a volunteer solicitor. And also looking at this from the volunteer perspective, how we all in our organizations can help equip volunteers, support volunteers, and help them be amazing fundraisers. Hey, Mara, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dahl. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Now, I want to start with a handful of questions, Mara, and I know I normally don't do rapid fire questions. We're going to do these rapid fire. Total, how much did the event raise in sponsorships the year you were soliciting? $235,500. Whoa, $235,500. And what was the most that it ever raised in sponsorships before then? Uh, I was told um, a little less than 145000 Wow. So like about a $100,000 increase in one year. Yeah, about 90. Wow. And it's a huge percentage, like 90,000 over 140,000 is a huge percentage. So now I've got some more questions for you. Um, did you have a lot of experience in fundraising? No, not at all. See, it's funny because I often have volunteer board members who say, well, I have no experience in fundraising. I can't raise money. Now, um, Volunteer board members will also often say to me, well, I don't know. I don't know any rich people, so I don't know anyone who I could ask for money. Do you know a lot of rich people? Not particularly, no. Wait a minute. Okay, hold on. So when I ask board members to go out and get sponsorships, there's always some number of board members who will say, well, I don't have good connections in the corporate community. You, you must you must be in the C-suite in a Fortune 500 company that's located in, in Raleigh, are you? Not at all. Wait a minute. Well, do you have a lot of corporate connections? No. <laughs> I would say that now I do. <laughs> yes, you sure do. I would agree with you 100% on that. So I have to say, the re and you can see, Mara, I'm smiling from ear to ear, because this is what we hear from volunteer board members all the time. And also, by the way, sometimes from our staff members and sometimes ourselves, we'll say, well, I, you know, I, I don't have good corporate connections. I don't know a lot of rich people. I've never asked anyone for money. So I'm curious, did you just start off not being scared at all and not having any concerns about starting to ask people for, it sounds like some big gifts, like $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 sponsorships? Yeah. No, when I started off, I definitely had some anxiety about asking people for that level of, of donation. And I mean, I will, I will say that I started off doing some phone banking for lapsed donors and that kind of eased me in a little bit <clears throat> because I just preparing myself for asking some of the largest donors, which I think were, you know, more in the range of like a thousand to, you know, 2,500, preparing myself mentally for that ask on the phone banking helped prepare myself for like, well, this is a corporation. 5,000, 10,000, 25,000 is not as big of an ask for a corporation as it is from an individual that, that I'm thinking about. So Yeah. And, and so, Mark, can we stop there and talk about that phone banking a little bit? Sure. Because I, I know that organization provided you with some support around that. And I want to give a quick shout out to Perry Monastero, who's um, a colleague of mine, not inside our consulting practice, but a colleague of mine who I know was involved in that. But can you talk about some of the some of the support the organization provided to those volunteers doing phone banking? When I began volunteering with the phone banking, I asked you if you could get Perry to organize like a script for me. I think he already had some bullet points and things going, but he gave it to me in a way that I had a good conversation flow. 
And that was really helpful for me just to have that to fall back on. And I will be honest, I think probably I only followed it 2% of the time, but it was helpful to have to fall back on if I was stumbling or struggling to keep the conversation going. If we can dive into that script a little bit, because I know you said that you only used it about 2% of the time, but my gut says you probably used it a lot the first few calls, right? Yes. And, and then what happened from there? I became more comfortable with the material and with the topics. And I became more comfortable with how people would respond to you know what I was saying. So just having that experience of getting those people to respond you know, authentically to what I was saying gave me a better idea of how to present the information to them. And of course... I had conversations, I had fantastic conversations with lapsed donors that were completely off script, but were were just a wonderful way to connect with people that cared about, you know, the same place that I did. Can you describe those uh, those wonderful conversations that were off script or or maybe even um, if one or two stand out, talk about those? Well, I talked to somebody who had gone to some of the international pride festivals. And the um, organization I was doing the phone banking for was related to LGBT. And this person was a little bit older than me and had gone to so many pride festivals all over the United States and had been in attendance at international pride festivals. And what he described to me was just an amazing, you know, image. So I was so thrilled to hear about that and just hear about his journey and how he really learned to celebrate himself and his community. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful story that he told me. And I mean, we probably talked for 10 minutes about all of his travels and all of his experiences. And that had nothing to do with the ask. It had nothing to do with, you know, the the kind of updates I was trying to get across or anything like that. It was just an aside, but it was it was an authentic connection. Mm. Wow, that that's incredible. And so I'm really curious, roughly, if you remember, how many calls did it take for you to go from, oh, I'm feeling nervous, I don't feel like I know this that well, to you feeling, I got this, I'm I'm ready to do more calls? I think maybe five, I don't know. I got pretty comfortable pretty fast. And I stopped trying to follow the script. You know, like I said, it was a good tool to have as a backup. And I'm glad that I was able to go over it and kind of go through it in in that conversation flow so that I could get that down. But then I kind of knew when to move to each different topic, you know, and when to kind of do the ask. And that was, I think, the the part that was the most nerve-wracking is asking somebody to come back as a sponsor who had not, I think these lapsed sponsors had not donated anything in the prior like two to three years. So they were fairly lapsed. It wasn't just like a little while since they donated. Yeah. And and real quick, and th- th- these were individuals, right? Like not, not companies that we're still talking about, right? These are individuals. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I just wanted to be clear because I, I know we said sponsors and we're going to talk about the sponsorships in a minute. I just want to make sure our friends who are listening know. And, and so as a volunteer and a volunteer who's done this very well, what advice do you have 
for other volunteers in that actual, you said the toughest part's the, the ask, in that ask? I think just finding a way to understand that if you care enough about the organization to donate your time and that other people may care enough to donate their treasure. And, you know, I mean, I think that everyone would do some combination of time, treasure, and talent is the what I've heard, the moniker. Um, and so just recognizing that everybody wants to be involved in a different way. And especially, I mean, these weren't cold calls. These were people that had opened their pocketbook and donated before to the organization, believed in it at one point to to do that. So it was just a matter of reconnecting. And this was all during the pandemic as well. So reconnecting during the pandemic, I would say was a different experience. And um, I have done phone banking for recruiting volunteers before, um, not asking for donations. And finding the right timing was much more difficult during that. But during the pandemic, when people were mostly at home, the call success I had, I would say was probably greater than usual because I was catching people at home and I was catching people with a few minutes to talk much more easily. However, the ask, it's just a matter of realizing that people want to be involved with an organization and want to support whether it's with volunteering or money, donations, and, you know, sharing anything that they have with the organization that they love. That is incredible. And again, you did that so well. And then you jumped from, okay, I've been, I've been talking to individuals about a thousand to $2,500 and you jumped to then talking to sponsors for like 5,000, 10,000 and plus. What was that transition like for you? So I was definitely still nervous, even after having the the success with phone banking, I was still nervous. And I believe that I asked you as the interim director for that same kind of conversation flow. You know, we didn't, we didn't ever uh, create a script or anything like that. But we talked about kind of the importance of each topic that we wanted to cover such as just an update on the organization, you know, first and foremost, like intros, update on the organization and and do all of that before getting to the ask. So it was important to me um, to have an outline of the conversation that I knew what to focus on at any given point in the conversation. The other thing that I think was really fantastic that we did was to ask people, ask prior sponsors about feedback that they had for the organization before getting into any asking about current sponsorship opportunities. Asking them about feedback from their prior experiences as sponsors and then really listening to that feedback. And I think that I adapted my approach to some of the the prior sponsors. I was approaching both prior sponsors as well as new sponsors in my time. So talking to prior sponsors was definitely different than talking to new sponsors for me. But talking to prior sponsors, I wanted to know what their experience was like in the past and what, if anything, could make that better. 
you know, and a lot of what we heard was more connection throughout the entire year. You know, people said to us, I don't want you to just come knocking once a year when you're fundraising for this event. I'd like to to have more connection throughout the year. I think that was taken back to the board. And I think some real changes occurred from hearing that feedback. And we adapted our approach to getting that feedback and listening. And once you get a piece of feedback that is actionable, then expressing that to everyone else, I think was was key as well. Because not everybody had that same feedback, but being able to say, you know, we, we've heard from some other sponsors that this was something that they would like to see us improve on. And this is what we did. And this is how we're making changes to address that need. Yeah. And I will say one of the things that I valued so much and that you were willing to do these solicitations, Mara, and you were willing to ask that question, hey, what would you like to see different is that those corporate sponsors are willing to tell you things as a volunteer that they might not say to a staff member uh, and they might not even say to the board chair. And so like we we got like a, a unvarnished feedback from sponsors because you were the person who was willing to to have those conversations and and make those solicitations. Yeah. Now, now I also know and this is an area where I thought you were incredibly strong. I also know that you didn't just stop communicating with sponsors after they said yes. That's right. I think follow through is definitely a big part of communication. It's not about holding someone's hand throughout the whole entire process, but it's about providing all of the information to them in in parcels. You can't overload somebody and just say, here's how we go from here. Here's everything you ever need to know. So parceling it out a bit, I think, was a way to have more effective communication with the sponsors once they agreed to be sponsors. So after our first few meetings with sponsors and you know getting some yeses, I developed my own email responses and you know was I was able to make sure I covered everything in each email, but I parceled it out into like three different parts so that I would say well, here's what happens first. And this is what I need from you, you know, in the next week or two. And then, you know, and then once we have all that, we'll talk about this. And then I waited for them to respond and to ask their questions and do their thing so that my next email was more directed and personalized to what their specific questions were, and then had the next steps for them as well. So I parceled it out a bit. I tried not to overwhelm them completely by just sending them like, a four page, you know, (laughs) email about everything that was going to happen from that point on. Doing it that way also just gave me more touch points and more interaction um, with people that we were trying to kind of revitalize the relationship they had with the organization because things were difficult during the pandemic. And the particular event that we were fundraising for had not happened live in two years, I believe. So this was something that we were getting back in good graces with everyone and reconnecting in a better way 
So I think having more interaction with them, although it was a lot of work for me on the end of responding to all of those emails, it was worthwhile because I think each person felt individually addressed and not just that we were giving them some blanket response. And once we got their money, we're like, okay, here's what you do. And we'll talk to you in a few months, you know? Right. And that's where I think as a volunteer, you provided so much value as well, because you essentially served as the relationship manager for those corporations that that you had solicited. And also at some level, also kind of the advocate, you know, like I know there were times that you would come back to the organization and you'd say, okay, you know, I, you know, I, I really want to do a little more. I want to do this or I want to do that. And and so you you were the relationship manager, but also kind of the advocate inside. And that was incredibly powerful and effective. So I've got a handful of other questions on um, on sponsorships and, and some of the things that you did. Because again, Mara, you did this so well and you just did this so effectively. So you found some really great ways to not just have email conversations with your sponsors and not just phone conversations, but there were times that you would actually say, hey, you know, we're going to go out and take a photo with the sponsor. Can you talk about those photo ops that you did with sponsors? Yeah, I think that after I spoke with the first few organizations that had sponsored in the past, I realized that they had not had touch points for a while due to the pandemic, but that it was important that they wanted to show the people that were involved. And I really wanted to see the whole team as well. And I wanted them to see our team of volunteers that was planning the event, as well as the staff members. So what I came up with was to just offer a photo op to any sponsor that wanted one where we could arrange a date that we would send out a team of, you know, staff and volunteers and that they would have whoever on their end of the organization was involved in, you know, that part of the corporate giving. And we would take a a photo and we would post it on social media and to be honest, this was something that was not originally part of the pitch deck that was developed. This was something that came up a little bit later because I had a couple tough conversations with organizations that felt like they had lost touch with the organization over the pandemic. And so they really were not, not very happy about that. Quite frankly, they had not received the proper amount of thank you and appreciation after them donating in prior years. And so that's something that we wanted to fix. And so this was an additional bonus to to what we were offering in the pitch deck to do these photo ops with their team. It It was an extra social media shout out. It was extra exposure and marketing for them. And it was on top of everything they were already getting at whatever level they committed to. So it was complete bonus opportunity. And quite a few organizations took us up on it. Yeah. And I will say these were these were fun photos that the companies and their team members really got into. Absolutely. I mean, it was great. And some some places were literally trying to get the entire place, the entire office in the picture, um, which was a little bit a little bit fun for us. It was a little bit of a crazy experience. So we didn't have a professional photographer or anything doing this, but it was fun to work out those details and get everyone together and just see the excitement 
And to actually be able to put, you know, faces to the name or, you know, if you had met virtually to meet in person, it was really a really great connection. And I think that just went a long way with generating enthusiasm for the event and enthusiasm for the sponsorship. And I hope that some of those same people that were energized by that experience are coming back again and and sponsoring year after year. So one of the things you also mentioned, Mara, is that this was a lot of work. And I want to recognize this was a lot of work because you are the primary point person on sponsorship. It's not like we gave you like six sponsors or eight sponsors. You were the primary person on sponsorship. And there's something that you asked for that I'm like, oh my gosh, it was so such a good idea and it was so ingenious. And that's, you asked for an organizational email address so that every time you checked personal email, you would not feel like you were back at this volunteer job where you were, where you were doing some really important work, but it was a lot of work. But also you put a an autoresponder on that organizational email address that I thought was important, but also powerful. Can, can you share what that autoresponder was? Yeah. So I just wanted to let people know that I was a part-time volunteer with irregular hours and that I would be checking email and responding several times a week. I offered the emails of everybody that they could contact that staff member of the organization if they needed a, a quicker response. There's no way that I would have been able to devote as much time as I did had it not been for the pandemic. And I was, I had been laid off from my job and I was receiving unemployment benefits. And so I had that time to donate. And so I was so glad that I did. I definitely found a worthwhile way to utilize that time. It was like a part-time job though. It was definitely something with all of the communications, not only with sponsors, but with the other planning committee members and um, staff members at the organization to get all the little details worked out. But so happy to give that time. And again, what I loved about that autoresponder was it made it clear you were a volunteer. It made it clear it might be a day or two before you got back in touch. So it managed expectations with sponsors, but it also helped sponsors see, oh, wow, you know, there's volunteers that care enough. Like, you know, this person's not not even paid to do this work, um, but cares so much that, you know, they're, that they're going to get back to me in a day or two. That's impressive. I think that me being a volunteer did communicate a high level of commitment And I think that was something that corporations responded to, that somebody was willing to um, donate their time in that way and their efforts in that way to make these connections and to, you know, bring in revenue for, for the nonprofit. So I think it was actually quite powerful that it was coming from a volunteer and I'm really happy that that worked out that way. Yeah, that's awesome. And so... Mara, if you were to give some advice to a board member or a volunteer who has been asked to fundraise and is hesitant, scared, concerned, whatever whatever word we might want to put in there, what advice would you give? I would say to take that leap of faith and to recognize that there's quite a soft landing at the other end. The people that you're going to be interacting with are enthusiastic about becoming involved with your nonprofit, it helps them. It is a benefit to them as well. 
you have to understand the value that you're providing for them and to be confident in the value that you're able to provide to them with their involvement with your organization. With them becoming a partner with your organization, that gives them a way to expand their brand and a way to bring a different level of exposure. And it provides an opportunity for them to engage with the community in a much more meaningful way. And that's a value to a company. That's something that the folks that are wanting to sponsor, they already know that that is something that is valuable to their company. So you coming to them and asking them for money is really just, it's offering a handshake. It is just saying, you want to be a partner. We want a community partner. Let's do this together. It's not scary. It's not intimidating. The people that you're asking want to be involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's awesome. Words of wisdom from someone who's done it. Thank you. And Mara, just when you thought the interview was about to end, it's time for the off-the-map question. Are you ready? Sure. Awesome. Tell us about getting your very first job. Okay. So actually, I didn't get the job the first time, but I was very enthusiastic about working. And I had been instilled with a sense of volunteerism as well from a very young age from my parents. And so I wanted to work with the elderly community. And I knew that there was a retirement community nearby to where I was living at the time. So I got on my bike and I rode down to this place and I interviewed for a job that I had seen in the paper. And I interviewed for the receptionist job at the retirement community, the front desk person. And I knocked that interview out of the park. (laughs) And I will have to say, I was so happy when they did offer me the job until they found out I was only 14 years old and that I was not yet legally allowed to work in the state of North Carolina. So they had no idea how young I was. And um, they they loved me. And uh, I actually did, once I was able to legally work, you have to kind of get your parents to sign off on it at a certain age. I don't remember if it was like 15 or 14 and a half even. It was, it was not too far off. I think it was probably 15 at that time. So once I was able to uh, work there legally and had my parents sign off, I did go back and get a job. It wasn't the same one, but I worked for that organization. And I mean, they remembered me, of course, uh, you know, a year or two later. So um Yeah, but I just, I thought that was hilarious. And I mean, of course, like I was just such an independent kid that I I don't think my parents had any idea that I was like, I'm off to interview for a job. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) I just took the initiative. I wanted to be involved with the elderly community and I saw an opportunity to do it and I just went for it. And oh, to see their faces when they found out how old I was, because it was when I was filling out the paperwork after them hiring. (laughs) 
you know, hiring me after the interview that they found out my age. And I have to say, I can actually picture that where like someone looks at the paperwork and like, ooh, ooh, I need to go talk to someone. And they go back like, okay, this was a great candidate, but um, um, not old enough to work yet. I mean, I can 100% picture that. that. What an awesome story. Thank you, Mara. Absolutely. And Mara, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I know that you are starting to do this professionally. So as a contractor, you're starting to really help other organizations think through their event sponsorships and, and actually help them structure how they're going to do solicitations and in some cases even help solicit those sponsorships. And so my friends who are listening, if you are interested in reaching out to Mara, we are going to put her email address in the show notes and we are also going to link to her LinkedIn page. Mara, thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Dolph. Thank you. All right, listeners. If you're walking away from this conversation thinking, oh my gosh, I need to send this to my board chair, or if you are the board chair and you're thinking, I need to send this to my development director or to my whole board to listen to this conversation about easy ways that your volunteers can get involved in soliciting and do it successfully. Well, there are two other episodes that I would recommend you think about. One is episode 235. That's with Chantel Shambliss, your guide to awesome volunteer solicitors. The second is episode 242, Recruiting and Managing Outstanding Volunteers with Diana Zhang. And listeners, I also always want to make sure you know that if you want to stay up to date on our latest episodes, hit that subscribe button and never miss a beat. If you're already a subscriber and want to support the podcast even more, write a review and share episodes on your social media. Those are the two most impactful ways you can support our show and help more people find out about us. That, my friends, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive. And I asked ChatGPT for some ways that I could do the disclaimer in a little more fun and engaging way. And so here's one of them. It's in the style of Maurice Sendak. Oh, dear listeners, please listen well. This podcast must surely tell. I'm no accountant nor lawyer, it's true. Tax and legal advice I cannot give you. My podcast is for information you see, not advice on accounting or legal fees. So if you need help with those sorts of things, find a licensed professional with all the right strings.